Well, this morning we continue our march through the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. We are starting in verse 33, and we'll go to verse 41. And if you need a Bible, you can find a Bible nearby on the ground, one of the blue provided Bibles. If you're looking for the passage, that's on page 853. The big number is going to be the chapter, the small number is going to be the verses, and we're starting in chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Thank you that we can trust it. God, we pray that as we approach your word, that it would transform us, that it would shape us, that it would stir our affections for your son, that we would see what Jesus has done here and that our love for him would increase, even if only just a little bit. God, we pray for the Saroy family. God, we think of Miles in the hospital as his kidneys aren't operating properly. God, we pray for wisdom for the doctors. We pray for encouragement to Zach and Olivia. Pray for endurance for them, as well as their other son, Calvin. God, we ask that his kidneys would begin to function correctly. Lord, we also give you praise for members of this church, Alex and Maggie Presley, who recently got married. We pray for your blessing on their marriage. Thank you for bringing them together. God, we're grateful that we are not the only church here proclaiming your word, that you have used other churches throughout the city, other churches throughout the state, nation, and the world. And God, we pray that they would stand firmly on your word and that the gospel would be heralded this morning. God, we pray in particular for Sojourn Church in Louisville. Thank you for their faithful partnership and thank you for the way that they continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray for Providence Church right here in Westerville. Thank you for their love for us. Thank you for even more so their love for you and the gospel and their willingness to proclaim it. God, we ask 
that the scriptures would be made clear to us this morning. That I would speak clearly. And Lord, where, where I don't speak clearly, by your Holy Spirit, please provide understanding. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So on January 10th, 1944, a man by the name of Harold Snell, goes by Hank, was born. And Hank was a baseball coach and a community servant. He was two times citizen of the year. And just for the way that he poured out his life for the citizens of Mount Vernon, Ohio. And I actually had the privilege of being coached by him for nine seasons. So this guy was pretty impactful in my life. And I had the privilege of attending his funeral this past Friday. And some of the most evident things in his life were that he loved the game of baseball, but even more so, he loved his players. And I can attest to that as a player for him for several years. And one of the things, if you don't know much about baseball, there's always a game within the game. And so you'll see coaches kind of touching their arms and touching their face and doing all these signs over by third base. It's because they're trying to tell their players certain things to do, whether that's bunt, whether that's steal, whether that's do a hit and run, whatever it is. They've got a game within the game. And Hank loved his players. He did not want them to miss a sign. So these signs are meant to be discreet. However, because he loved his players so much, did not want them to miss a sign, his players did understand what was happening. However, the other team oftentimes did too. <laughs> if touching your cheek was meant to steal, I'd be on first base and he'd say, Robert, <laughs> tap, tap his cheek a bunch. For if, Hank, I got it, thank you. <laughs> I think the other team does too. <laughs> but he so badly loved his players. He so much loved his players. He did not want them to miss the sign. And in today's text, we see a loving God providing his people with a very clear sign that he does not want them to miss. And that sign proclaims boldly that because Christ was forsaken, we may be brought near. Because Christ was forsaken, we may be brought near. And so I said earlier, we've continued to march through Mark. Now we've been in it for about a year and a half now, but we are coming to the end. And this, just as a way of reminder is John Mark. Sometimes in the New Testament he's referenced as John, other times he's referenced as Mark. He is writing to Christians in Rome and he's trying to encourage them. And the overarching theme that we continue to see is God restoring his wayward people. But it's in this text today, as we've said that phrase countless times, God restoring his wayward people, it's in this text today where we see the sign that restoration is now made available. We've said that phrase so many times, but it's right here today where we get to see the sign that restoration has been made possible. And so, to help us see that clearly, to help us to see the, the clear sign clearly, there are two things that I want to see in the text. You can find them in your bulletin. The first is Christ our substitute, and the second is Christ our access. Christ our substitute and Christ our our access. So beginning with Christ, our substitute, we see this passage starting off in verse 33, in the sixth hour. Sixth hour is noon. They would begin to count hours around sunrise, which was about six o'clock in the morning. 
And so the third hour would be around nine o'clock, the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be three o'clock, which we'll see here in just a little bit. And so this passage begins at noon, the time of day where the sun should be highest in the sky, the time of day where there should be the most light possible. But it's particularly here where we see there was darkness over the whole land. So at the time of day, as Mark points out to us, the sixth hour, noon, where it should be the brightest, there's actually darkness covering the whole land. And any good Israelite, when they think of darkness covering the land, would be reminded of another time when God covered a land with darkness. That's the Exodus story, where we see God sending a prophet to declare God's judgment against the enemies of his people. He does this through plagues. You see 10 plagues in the Exodus story. And he declares this judgment to free his people from their bondage and to lead them into a promised land of freedom and rest. So we see in Exodus 10, right when the ninth plague is happening, this is right before the final 10th plague when the death of the firstborn takes place. But as the ninth plague is getting ready to take place, we read that in Exodus 10, 21, that the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. So we see in Exodus, three days of darkness. We see in this passage in Mark, three hours of darkness. We see again in Amos 8, continuing this idea of darkness equating to judgment, that on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, at the sixth hour, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. We see here at the sixth hour at noon, as we see prophesied in Amos 8, that the land is getting dark and there's going to be mourning as for an only son. Darkness, when we see this in this passage, should trigger our minds to think judgment. And during this judgment, we see Jesus crying out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jonathan pointed out, this is him quoting Psalm 22, a psalm that he would have been very familiar with. And so Jesus, on the cross, at the sixth hour at noon, we see this darkness taking over. And then we see him ask God why he's forsaken him. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is why would the Father forsake the Son? We firmly believe in the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are eternally connected. But we see Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? And the reason is because we see God judging his enemies, judging sin, bringing judgment upon sin, which is signified by the darkness. And his judgment is being poured out onto Jesus. Jesus, who has been in perfect fellowship with God the Father, is now taking on sin, the enemy of God. Those who are sinful are considered rebels, who have rebelled against God. And Jesus takes on this sin 
and God brings judgment upon his enemy, just like he did with the Israelites and the Egyptians, where he's freeing them from bondage. Sin, for everyone who is not in Christ, has enslaved you. If you are not in Christ, you are enslaved to your sin. But there is freedom offered through Christ because he has taken on the Father's judgment. God cannot and will not tolerate sin. It's like oil and water. God's perfectly holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so if we have any sin in our lives, we cannot come into the presence of God. That sin has to be dealt with. Even if you live a perfect life from this moment forward, you still have past sin that needs to be addressed. Jesus, however, had no sin. And for our sake, he became sin. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So as Jesus is on the cross, it gets dark because God's judgment is being poured out. But it's not being poured out on those who put him on the cross. It's being poured out on Jesus because he has taken sin upon himself. And some who are there, if you look in verse 35, some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. So there's a couple reasons why they would think that he was calling Elijah. The first one is because the phrase, the Aramaic phrase, Eloi, sounds like Eli, which is Elijah. And so when they hear him crying that out, they think, oh, he's calling Elijah. And Elijah in the Old Testament was prophesied to come before the Messiah. And so they're saying, hey, if he is the Messiah, then Elijah will actually come. Now, Jesus had already affirmed that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure promise. We see that in Matthew 11. But they're thinking, we're going to see Elijah come. If this guy really is the Messiah, we're going to see Elijah show up. But the second reason is because there was some folklore during that time regarding Elijah. They believed because Elijah never actually died, he was caught up in a chariot of fire. See this in 2 Corinthians or 2 Kings 2. Because he never actually died, there's this common belief, a little bit of folklore, a little bit of myth, that Elijah would come back and help any righteous person who was in need. And so they thought, okay, if this guy is who he says he is, if he is the righteous Messiah, and he's calling Elijah, then of all people, Elijah should show up for this guy. Let's see if he does. And so when he's crying out, they say, hey, you know what? Let's, hopefully he doesn't die soon, so let's give him some, something to drink to prolong his life a little bit, because we're curious. We want to see if Elijah will, in fact, show up. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So surely this would be an instance where a righteous person, a righteous person is in need of Elijah to show up. However, when they give him that drink, hoping to prolong his life, Jesus lets out a loud cry. He uses that drink not to prolong his own life so that maybe Elijah would show up. He uses that drink to let out a loud cry. We see in verse 37 that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John tells us that he said, it is finished. (coughs) Luke tells us that he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so in that moment, after he says these things, 
he dies, which is a bit unusual for him to have died that quickly because typically crucifixion would take days. The individuals who are being crucified would slowly die of asphyxiation. They would slowly suffocate because as, as they're on the cross and they're waiting there and they're breathing in, they eventually can only breathe in so much and eventually they just die from a lack of oxygen, which is why you, you read that uh, they went to break his legs and they didn't end up breaking his legs because he was already dead. And so they would, those who were on the cross being crucified, others, they would break their legs so that their legs could no longer support them because their legs would support them and they would try to be able to breathe longer. So if they break their legs, their legs can't support them, they can't breathe as long and the process ends up going quicker. Jesus, however, in this moment, lets out a loud cry, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he dies, which was surprising to everyone. The centurion is bewildered by this. <laughs> he even says that surely this man was the son of God because he's perplexed that this individual died that quickly. He's talking to God and then he gives up his life. Jesus himself said that uh, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And so Jesus, in this moment, is laying down his own life. Could have prolonged his life, but he lays it down on his own accord. No one takes it from him. He finished with his strength, which is interesting to note. And Christian, just as a kind of a side, loosely connected point here, for us to finish our race strong, to finish well, we must depend on the one who finished well on our behalf. You will not finish this race. You will not live the Christian life faithfully and finish strong if you are not each day depending on Christ. So do not rely on your own strength. Rely on the strength of the one who finished strong. So we see in this passage, in these few verses, Jesus in his people's place as their substitute, taking on the full measure, the full punishment of their sin, which includes at least three things. One, it includes him taking the just wrath of the Father. Two, it includes him embracing the God-forsaken state that sin deserves. And three, it's him taking on the death that sin brings. In taking our full punishment, he receives God's just wrath. He receives the God-forsaken state that our sin deserves, and he receives the death that sin brings. Jesus atoned, or he paid for, the sin of his people by bearing their punishment as their substitute. This, as theologians will call it, is penal substitutionary atonement. It's a Big phrase, you don't need to remember it, but just remember this is the heart of the gospel. That someone would bear our penalty in our place for our sin to be taken care of. To deny this, to deny the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, someone taking our penalty in our place to atone for our sin, is to miss the gospel. We must understand what we've been saved from. For someone to bear our penalty for someone to take on our sin, for someone to step into our place as our substitute is good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. We need to be reminded of this because sometimes it's easy to, to forget 
what we've been saved from. We've been saved from God's just wrath against sin. Anyone who loves something dearly is going to hate anything that brings that thing harm. I have two kids. If anyone tried to hurt one of my children, there would be a wrath that comes out of me that I've never seen before because of the love that I have for them. And that's only a very, very, very small picture of God's love for his people and the wrath that he has against the things that would bring them harm. So God brings his wrath against sin and it's poured out onto Christ who stands in our place. For someone to bear our penalty and to take our sin and to stand in our place is good news. And it's the root of the victory that we have over sin, death, and Satan. But it's because Christ died in our place. We have victory only because Christ died in our place. God's demand for justice has been satisfied if you are in Christ. So if you are in the room this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you are considering Christianity, but today you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, be reminded that the call for all Christians, call for all people, excuse me, is to repent and believe the gospel. We see this at the beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark 1.15. It says the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. This is the call. If you do not repent and believe the gospel, then that wrath that was poured out onto Jesus will be poured out onto you instead. Jesus took the sins of his people. Those sins have been paid for. If you are in Christ, your sins are paid for. If you are not in Christ, those sins are not yet paid for. And so the question is, who will be paying for your sin? Will it be you or will you trust in the atoning work of Christ? Christian, God will judge. So therefore, when we are sinned against, we can trust the Lord's just hand. We do not need to take vengeance into our own hands. God will bring judgment. We see this on the cross. And it's going to take place again on the last day. But we read Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How do we do that? The very next verse, verse 19, Romans 12. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The cross is a reminder to us that God will bring judgment. We do not need to take justice into our own hands. We should pursue justice. We should want what is just and, and advocate for what is just. However, final justice will only, be take, will only take place when God brings it on the last day. If you are in Christ, you can rest assured that your sin has been paid for. If you are not in Christ, then you will pay for your sin. I would encourage you today to not go down that path, to instead take Christ. Maybe you're in the room this morning and it feels like the raging storm that we, talked, that we sang about. Maybe you're hurting. Also, I'd like to encourage you that if you are in Christ, you can find hope in the promise that God has given to his people to never leave them nor forsake them, even in death. 
God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Charles Spurgeon talking about this. He says, death is no longer banishment. It is a return from exile, a going home to the many mansions where the loved ones already dwell. Because Christ was banished in our place. The only reason why it's a going home, why it's a return from exile, why it's not a banishment is because Christ in your place has been exiled. Christ in your place has been banished. Christ has left his throne so that he could take on our sin so that we could enter into the presence of God. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then any forsakenness or loneliness you feel today is only a small foretaste of the eternal banishment and eternal exile that you will feel for all eternity. We are separated from God because of our sin. However, a way has been made for us to be brought back to him, but that way is only, only, only through Christ. If you are a skeptic or perhaps searching, I would encourage you, don't be like the bystanders who see the Son of God on the cross and walk by and don't even recognize who he is. As he calls out, they're more consumed with folklore. Don't be more consumed with spiritual myths or systems that you overlook the Son of God and his finished work on the cross. It's funny, as a, I've only been a pastor for a short time now. We're a young church. And so it is interesting that when I share with people and they ask, what, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. Immediately, it's like a light switch goes on. They immediately put on their spiritual cap. <laughs> and I, I hear some very interesting things when people put on their spiritual hat. But I just sometimes wish I could just tell them, hey, just look to Christ. I'm not asking for you to be this super hyper-spiritual person who thinks that all of your loved ones are sitting on your shoulder and telling you what to do. Like, look to Christ. Don't over-spiritualize this. Yes, we are in spiritual warfare. However, the solution is far less complex than what we oftentimes give it credit for. Christ has finished the work, and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Others, maybe they don't get super spiritual, but they just aren't satisfied with the simplicity of the gospel. They think that it should be more difficult than that. That it should be more than faith alone. That it should be more than grace alone. It should be more than Christ alone. We should, we should play some role in that. We direct, direct them, and if that's you this morning, we direct you to 1 Corinthians 1, where we read in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 27, Paul goes on, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The gospel, the good news is simple. Faith alone in Christ alone. And because our sin has been paid for, because our punishment has been paid, because Christ has stood in our place 
as a substitute, because he is our substitute, we now have access. So you see that second point in your bulletin, Christ, our access. Look at me in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll be familiar with the idea of curtains dividing the temple. So there were two curtains. One was right in front of the holy place, and one was in between the holy place and the most holy place. And it was the most holy place where the presence of God was. And so when it says the curtain was torn in two, which curtain was it? Well, there are two different words used for each curtain. So the original wording there implies that it was the curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place, the one right in front of the presence of God. And this most holy place was a place that was only accessed once per year by the high priest to go in, make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel, And he would go in and he would return with their sins atoned for. But now we see in this Passover passage, as Passover is going on here in Jerusalem, we see another priest being sacrificed. Not only does Jesus act as our priest, but he also acts as our great sacrificial lamb. And it's through him that that curtain is now torn And it's through him that access to God, to the presence of God, is now made available. Jesus is our high priest. And because Jesus is our high priest, if we are in him, we are called to be a holy priesthood. We see this in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we have access to God. So that, 1 Peter continues, Peter continues on here, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you are in Christ, if you are in the great high priest, then you are called to be a royal priesthood. You are called to enter into the presence of God and you are also called to tell others about him, about this access that we now have through Christ. So evangelism is the responsibility, brothers and sisters, of every Christian not just the super evangelist. God has uniquely placed you in areas and given you unique opportunities and he's uniquely wired you so that you can have an impact on those around you for the sake of the gospel. We're to tell others of this access. But then also, just as Jesus is our high priest and we're called to be a priesthood, Jesus is the sacrifice necessary. And if we are in him, then we are called to live our lives as a holy sacrifice. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If we are in Christ, we are meant to tell others about him. But if we are in Christ, we are also to live sacrificially, just as he did. And this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was a massive curtain. So it's not the curtains that you find in your house. These were thick, and they were 60 feet tall and 15 feet wide. So I looked at a little research, and that is nearly, not quite, but nearly as tall as the White House. So think massive curtains. So no human being is tearing these. And the fact that it was ripped from top to bottom 
indicates who did the tearing. God came down so that access may be made for his people. And it's the centurion who recognizes this. Not his disciples, not faithful followers off to the side. It's the centurion who is the first person in Mark's gospel to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. All leading up to this point, we've seen demons confess that. We've seen God the Father confess that when he talks about his Son. But we've not seen a human being confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's the centurion here. The man who may have been involved with Jesus' mocking and beating just in the earlier passage that we read a couple weeks ago. He now confesses that truly this man was the Son of God. While others are preoccupied, preoccupied with the folklore regarding Elijah, the centurion sees Jesus for who he really is. And this, Mark puts this here. We don't know um, if this centurion ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. It seems likely the fact that Mark put it there. And so this apparent conversion is a glorious and wonderful thing. However, we can't overlook the steady faithfulness of the women who are there witnessing his death. Look in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the one that Jesus cast seven demons out of, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. So these three women, they are the last at the cross. They did not desert, desert Jesus. His disciples deserted him. Others who were previously uh, coming and flocking to hear him teach are no longer there. But these women are faithful. They're the last at the cross. And as we'll see here in just a few weeks, they're the first ones at the tomb. It's these three who are faithful to the end. They get to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. One source put it this way, it says, as is so often the case in the Gospels, it is the least likely, in this case, women, who prove to be most acutely aware of who Jesus is and the supreme worth of following him. Why? Why follow him? These women were faithful to the end. Why follow him? Because even if they didn't understand in full, understand somewhat, because it's only through him that access to God can be had. It's only through Christ. So because the Son of God satisfied the wrath of God, the presence of God is now made available to the people of God. Because the Son of God satisfied the wrath of God, the presence of God is made available to the people of God, all who would call on the name of Christ can be brought into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. He, God, has provided the way for us to be restored to him. This is great news. Christ's work led to that curtain being torn, not our work. And so Christian, don't think too highly of yourself. This is good news, that your work is not the basis of your salvation. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called salvation. It would be called merit. Christ's work has saved us if you are in him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
recognize that restoration to God only comes on God's terms. We don't get to create a way. The curtain was torn from the top down. We don't, we're not able to tear that curtain from the bottom up. Restoration to God comes on God's terms. Again, as I reminded the Christians in the room, your works cannot save you. It's not anything that you can do, church attendance, how much you give, how much you serve. It's not any of those things, how nice you are to your neighbors. Those things will not save you. Your sin needs to be addressed. And it can be only through Christ. And so when confronted with Jesus, like the bystanders were, like the centurion was, how will we respond? Like the centurion, who says, truly this is the Son of God. This is God's Son. I believe. Put my faith in that. Or will your response be like the bystanders or the chief priests, who in verses 29, we see they derided him and they mocked him. We can't overlook how each individual responds. We can't overlook the faithful women who are given little space in the text. And yet, it's them who were the most faithful. They were last at the cross and they were first at the tomb. And these women, given very little uh, writing by John Mark, they're faithfully serving Jesus. There's no Instagram photos being taken. There's no credit being given. There's no titles being had by the church. Just a couple sentences written that they watched from a distance. And then later on, that they were the ones who showed up to the tomb. So the question for us is, are you willing to serve even if you get little to no recognition? Are you willing to serve the body? Are you willing to serve Christ even if hardly anyone notices? Is proximity to Christ enough. For these women it was. By God's grace, he's made a way for us to be brought near. And now, in his kindness, he has provided Jesus, and now he says, come. He bids us to to come to the cross. Our sin, if you think about it, our sin was so heinous that the God of all things had to send his son to be brutally murdered to atone for our sin. Our sin is far more heinous than what we realize, but God's love for us is far greater than what we realize as well. Spurgeon again says it, says of God, you call me to yourself by saying, come away. And this is a melodious call indeed. To come to you is to come home from exile to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. This is provided in Christ. Because Christ was forsaken, because he was forsaken on the cross, because he stood as our substitute, we may be drawn near. We may be brought near to God. We may be brought home from exile. We may be brought to the land out of the raging storm. We may be brought to rest after long labor. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. We may be brought to the goal of our desires and the summit of all of our wishes. This is found in Christ. And so Christian, be reminded of the access that you have in Jesus. 
Satan will do everything that he can to get you to forget about the access that you have to the Father. Do not forget it. Christ has purchased it. Non-Christian, you need to know that this is available. That it is available outside of your works. It's available through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of us this morning need to ask the question, is will we step through that curtain into the presence of God and enjoy fellowship with him through Christ? Or will we, like the bystanders, pass on by? Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing your son. It's a gift to be reminded of that. We pray that we would enjoy your presence through him. That when we sin, we'd be reminded that our sin has been paid for if we are in Christ. That we'd be reminded that our access to you is still available through Christ. We pray that those who may not have received Christ or received the gospel, who may be in this room, that today would be the day that they would do that. They would call on Jesus as their Lord, call on Jesus as their Savior, that he would be their treasure. And now, God, we, we ask that by your grace, you would help us to be reminded of these things as we go about our week. At the beginning of a new week, Lord, we pray that we would be very aware of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We ask that you would give us opportunities to share this with others, that we'd be evangelistic. We ask that we would grow in our understanding of it as disciples. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.